Special thanks to Fonda Santa Rosa, the only place in Houston where you find the best authentic Mexico City-style Mexican food. Welcome to another episode of Latinos Who Thrive. Our podcast is dedicated to celebrating and exploring the stories of Latinos who have achieved success and fulfillment in their lives. Our mission is to inspire and empower our listeners through the journeys and experiences of our guests who come from a wide range of backgrounds and professions. Whether you're a young professional just starting out or someone looking for inspiration to achieve your dreams, this podcast is for you. Join us as we delve into the triumphs, challenges, and lessons learned by some of the most inspiring Latinos in the world. This week, we feature a conversation with serial entrepreneur, Angel Munoz, founder and CEO of Mass Luminosity in Dallas and the creator of Beacon, the next generation free video conferencing and communications platform that will honestly startle you with amazing visual and audio clarity. Let me tell you, I test drove it for this interview and I was thoroughly impressed. Angel has been called the Latin Steve Jobs, and for good reason. He shares his personal story from growing up in Puerto Rico, the stockbroker to gaming industry icon, and a tech visionary. Angel expects to take the world by storm with Beacon Max, the next generation in this innovative technology. He has partnered with legendary boxer and statesman Manny Pacquiao to offer Beacon Max at an affordable introductory price and he will also donate a percentage of the proceeds to the International Manny Pacquiao Foundation. Be sure to check out Beacon Max Technologies in the show notes. And now, let's get on with it. And now we have Angel Munoz. Angel, welcome to Latinos Who Thrive. Victor, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to have you as a guest because you are a very high-profile Latino who has made it big in tech, as well as in digital platforms. So Angel, tell us about the through line of your background and how you got to where you are today. And you want me to start from the very beginning, Victor? Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, well, uh, thank you again for having me on the show. Um, I was born in New York City from Puerto Rican parents. Uh, my parents decided to move to Puerto Rico when I was nine years old. I moved back to the States. They still live in Puerto Rico uh, when I was 19. So I lived in Puerto Rico for 10 years. And um, I, at the time, did not see the value of having the imprint of the Latino culture in my personality and in my psyche. And now, as I look back over the years, I just really do appreciate the exposure and being able to, to be fluent in two languages is, is kind of a major advantage. I want to drill down on this because a lot of Latinos uh, that I've spoken with over the years, they want to anglicize their identity. And you and I know that it, it doesn't really work that well for you to really crush it in business and in your personal life. Because you cannot whitewash your past, you got to be connected to your roots and to your foundation. So I'm curious to know, how were those formative years in Puerto Rico? And I know what an imprint experience is because that defines you for life. So what were some of those earliest experiences that you went through that created that imprint in you? Well, when I, when I got there as a nine-year-old uh, kid, it was interesting because I was not accepted 
since I was the kid from New York City. And so I had to not only learn the language in its totality, but also um, find, you know, what I found was humor. Victor kind of, you know, dissipates all barriers. And that was kind of my, my approach to it is to be the humorous guy. So I ended up being sort of the clown of the class <laughs> and, and everybody. And then I, I gained incredible uh, friendships that I still have today uh, from that period of my life. And I realized then that that would be one of the weapons that I would use my entire life. I weaponized humor in the sense of, of being able to not only melt down barriers from me to a Latino community, but in reverse, also me as a Latino now into the sort of the more general uh, community. And so having a sense of humor has been kind of the thing. In fact, the company now today, if we can fast forward really, really quickly, is we all have a really great sense of humor. That's the way that we sort of work and all that. And I think it comes from the top down. So uh, I know that that doesn't sound like the magical formula that a lot of people get when they read, you know, uh, positive thinking books and things of that nature. But I really do believe that having, taking things, you know, accepting reality as it is and always looking for the kind of the way to make it funny. <laughs> so uh, my friends tell me something, Victor, that, uh, that I'm recently, you know, understanding that when I tell a story, I am not the hero. I'm normally the victim of something that happened <laughs> and all that. And it makes it funnier because it shows a little, a bit of self-deprecation, a little bit of, you know, not such a big ego that I have to do everything correctly. The experience, let the imprint that it left me was not only humor, but a bit of humility in the process of, you know, it's people have automatic prejudice and that is not something that you can, you can criticize it. You can, you know, you can do whatever you want around it, but until you accept it and deal with it, and then through humor, you can even show how crazy it is to have these automatic views about, for example, a community of Latinos that is composed of so many different cultures and so many different approaches to life that it's kind of nonsensical. So to me, it, it's funny. So I think that was the first step. I remember, and I, now I'm going to fast forward just a little bit, when I first did my first interview for a stockbroker, which you had to have a degree, and I did not, Victor, I did not graduate from college. The person that was interviewing me asked me why I wanted that job. And I asked him, I said, well, I'll, ask, I'll answer if, if you can, if you'll answer one question. And, and, he, go, and he, he goes, sure, I'll answer one question. Do you make money? Like he was in charge of every person that's out there on the floor. And he goes, yeah. Okay, well, I can tell you what my goal is. You want to hear that? Yeah, I want your job. And in fact, I got it. <laughs> he ended up working for me one time. So, so anyway, so it was, I mean, he laughed and I laughed, but it was true. That's what I wanted. I wanted his job. And so I think that being able to integrate humor into a daily process that is going to grind you and life is tough, uh, it comes at you fully loaded with both guns absolutely loaded to the max. And for you to develop a sense of humor about it, I think it's a great way of approaching life. And that was one of the main imprints that I got from that, beyond the, the, the knowledge of the Spanish language, which is such a beautiful, rich language. 
And one of the things that is interesting about laughter and humor is that there's actual science behind how laughter releases endorphins into our body. And I don't know if you heard the story, but uh, Norman Cousins uh, was, uh, was given a, a terminal illness diagnosis and he decided that he was gonna cure himself through laughter. <laughs> no, I did not know that story, that's great. Yeah, so <laughs> it's very important to have humor, to see the humorous side of things as part of your arsenal, as part of your secret weapons. Uh, to succeed in life. I interviewed the famous uh, comic uh, Felipe Esparza uh, two weeks ago, and, uh, and he was telling me how he, a troublemaker in school, and, and he just happened to see the funny and everything. And so he never imagined to be a comic, but he started to talk to people, and he was mentored by Paul Rodriguez. So... Uh, mm-hmm. That was the making of a comic. So you can even, if you get really good, you can make it into a profession. Right, absolutely. So Angel, so you you became a stockbroker and you also uh, opened up an investment uh, firm. Uh, tell us what drove you to do that. Was it an opportunity? Was it being at the right place at the right time? Either one, actually I was at the wrong, I was at the wrong place at the wrong time. It, um, uh, this is now we're looking at the at the 80s after the crash of the market in the 80s, uh, the famous first Black Friday. Yes. And uh, it was just everyone was basically running for the hills and upset about their portfolios being completely decimated by this this incredible uh, downturn in the market. Saw that there were a few industries that were up and coming. Uh, one of them being, you know, technology. Um, and then this is the end of the 80s, beginning of the 2000s, then the World Wide Web and things of that nature. And so I launched an investment banking firm uh, called New World Investments. And it was about that. It was about creating, you know, about, about helping finance the technologies of the future. And I really became enamored by technology, which I already had done previously and have been exposed to it through dealing with entrepreneurs, uh, you know, um, uh, great thinkers and all that by, by helping finance their ideas. And then that I started thinking, wait a second, I really could do this. And, and you, know, I, you know, I have my own ideas. Why don't I pursue them? So it happened that the UK company was interested in buying my company at the time. And so I accepted their offer. I sold it and I went straight into the worldwide web business and, um, and decided that out of all the things that I saw, the one that had the most potential, in my opinion, was video gaming. So I first launched a website called Adrenaline Vault back in, this was now, 1995 and it became the number one uh website of its type in the world it was unquestionable that we were number one and um and then as i exposed myself to that audience i came up with the idea victor of what's now known as electronic sports or esports and it's simply uh the concept is very simple for your audience it's the idea 
that video game competitions could be presented as a professional sport. And um, that became a $3 billion industry. Uh, I sold uh, that company uh, about 12, 15 years ago. Maybe it's been 12 years probably when we, when we actually closed it to an Asian company that still runs it today uh, in Asia and, uh, and then decided to launch the company that I still work for today. What were the factors that it became an overnight success? You know, ideas are, um, so there are a few things that are critical for success, but the two most important ones, in my opinion, are content and knowledge. Um, so knowledge, not only knowledge is, is not only as just pure knowledge, but also the intelligence to gain that knowledge. So, and content and content, meaning what is the historical, what is the present uh, conditions that can lead you to a successful path. And I've been fortunate enough, Victor, and I'm not sure how I, I couldn't elicit in words how I do this, but I have the ability to be able to see the megatrends. And when you are aware of where things are going, then you can do something about it. So when I saw video gaming used to be smaller than Hollywood and the music industry and all that, it was a niche market at best at the time. And it was a pastime. Today, it is the largest form of entertainment in the world. We're talking Pac-Man. Well, in the, pa in the Pac-Man days, that was very small. And now it is an incredible, huge industry. And I knew that was coming. That's the mega trend, right? That's the content also is yes. the internet has launched. People are playing online, competing with each other. Everything was there. You know, it was like a, it's like somebody handed me a blueprint and said, and all I put together was yes. sports. Let's present it as a sport. Bear in mind that I took a lot of abuse in the process. No one thought that I would do it, <laughs> but, but it ended up being that I was right. You've been called the Steve Jobs social media and technology. I think I think they'd call me the Hispanic Steve Jobs. <laughs> Latino Steve Jobs. How are you the Latino Steve Jobs? What is the correlation? That's a super high honor. I know there's a lot of Latinos in technology. I hope that they are. I don't personally know that many, but like Steve Jobs, maybe I have a discontent with the way things are, and I always want to try to improve them. Uh, i.e. the platform that we are right now, which is, as you know, Beacon, or i.e. social media, when we went into social media and try to and try to improve that. I live with a discontent of how things are, and I always look at them in a way, how can they be improved? And I'm not scared or have no fears or concerns about failing in the process, because for me, that doesn't even exist. Failure is just one outcome. And if you don't get that, you know, like if you have an expectation, so failure is like the frustration of an expectation, right? And if that, if it doesn't hit the mark, then what are you doing to change that so that it hits the mark? And, and if it's not that mark that it needs to hit, maybe you need to adjust what mark you really need to hit. So, which is interesting because that philosophy that I just explained is the same philosophy that I applied to Mass Luminosity, the current the company that I am now the CEO for and have been the CEO for the last 12 years, Victor. And the thing about it is when I launched the company, I didn't have a business plan. 
I had no idea. I just knew that there were some trends that I wanted to capitalize on. One was, you know, I, I felt that communication in the world would become strained between humans and I want to enfragment it to a certain degree. And I wanted to provide technologies that could defragment. And then I also saw the advent of artificial intelligence. But it took us 10 years to figure out how to apply those technologies. And now we've, I've been completely vindicated by, um, by ChatGPT that everybody's talking about now. And that is exactly the first uh, tangible manifestation of what I saw 12 years ago. So, and I'm super excited because now we we're on a mission. Now we know it can be done. So I'm so happy that OpenAI uh, released that product. Where do you see your current product evolving into? I think that the right way of doing this is to capitalize on artificial intelligence and the integration of artificial intelligence into an environment like the one that we are. For your audience that is just listening to us, we are on my product right now. We, are, we see each other and we can interact with each other. And, but in the background, what your audience or you don't know is that there's an artificial intelligence that I can summon on command and have her, which we've given her a female personality, uh, a number of tasks that are, that are normally um, you know, just not fun. <laughs> and, and it could you know, do a number of things and and with the chat gpt integration since we are a licensed partner of open ai we can have it ans answer questions like for example when we were talking about stand up and delivery because of your famous last name you know um we could query the ai and it could give us more data about you know the roots maybe of of the last name escalante and uh so anyway that's where i think it's going i think we are destined to have a symbiotic relationship with super intelligences that we refer to as artificial intelligence. I think that's what I want. This is what the NFL does in live transmission. It's like they have reams of data available at a fingertip uh, on anything that they want to drill down on, provide uh, a TV guest or the, the host uh, in information. Can you demonstrate uh, this to, to me right now? We have not activated it yet. We have activated portions of it, but your audience will not be able to hear it. Okay. You can describe it, but I, I can show you one, just a, a simple task, but the full nature of it, we have not deployed yet, right? In fact, that's, we at Theodore and I were having a meeting, Theodore being our chief technology officer. We're having a meeting before this call about some of the functionalities we will soon release with that. But well, let me tell our audience what this uh, what is happening live as we speak. I'm on uh, Angel's platform, which is a streaming platform that takes streaming and live conferences to a whole nother level with all the features uh, and tools that you have on both sides of the screen so that it's very user-friendly. I don't have to close a window and go looking for a tab. It's right there in front of me that I can, as a host, I can command uh, whatever information I need. And uh, you have made a believer out of me. Thank you, Victor. Thank you. 
And obviously, we'll have uh, a link uh, to your company and your products in the show notes. I am very impressed uh, with what you've done here. Thank you. So the AI is called Sammy, and she is, that stands for Socially Advanced Machine Intelligence. So S-A-M-I. And she's always ready to answer anything or to help in any way. I, I will ask her so your audience knows ahead of time. I'm going to ask her to take a picture, as simple as that. Take a picture of all of us. And I can say, hey, Sammy. Okay. Take a picture. And it took a picture. And then all of us, I'm going to send it to all of us uh, so that we all have it. And now it'll download it. You click on that on that little thing and you'll see the picture. I haven't seen it. so. Amazing. Very, very amazing. Very low level task that we can do all kinds of things already. But the ultimate task, the one that I wish was ready is being able to ask her very unique questions about what we're talking about and for her to, to give us, you know, in-depth answers about them. You're listening to Latinos Who Thrive with special guest Angel Munoz. We'll be right back. ¿Estás buscando el auténtico sabor de México aquí en Houston? No busques más que Fonda Santa Rosa, el restaurante que ha estado sirviendo deliciosa comida casera mexicana por más de 10 años. Desde fajitas de carne, mole poblano, puntas de res al chipotle, puntas de res a la mexicana, plato chipaneco, chuletas de cerdo en salsa verde, y mucho más Fonda Santa Rosa tiene algo para todos. Así que ya sea que estés buscando una comida abundante con familiares y amigos o una celebración, ven a Fonda Santa Rosa y experimenta los sabores de México aquí mismo en nuestro propio comedor. Visítanos hoy en Facebook o Instagram para ver toda la selección de platillos. Fonda Santa Rosa, donde cada comida es una fiesta. We now return you to Latinos Who Thrive with special guest, Angel Munoz. So Angel, this leads me to my next question. Did you reverse engineer this product as a result of seeing what was in the marketplace and finding all the flaws or, or what is the genesis of, of this new product? Well, yeah, um, I wouldn't say reverse engineer because that would that would mean that we took an existing platform and changed it. We obviously were aware of Siri and, and all the Alexa and all the other ones that are out there, but no one had integrated them into a live communication environment. And so we um, not only decided to do that, but we did it. We filed patents to protect it, protect it too. Because we didn't want, you know, our big competitors, be it Microsoft or Zoom for that matter, or or Google, just to go ahead and do it without them having to knock on our door first, right? Since we obviously were the first ones to do that. And we found it was a lot more difficult than we expected in the beginning. So it took us a few years to get it right. But as we've progressed over the years, Sammy has gotten more and more useful. I mean, Sammy can reschedule calls, can add people to the phone call, can actually knock a person off the phone call, can do a number of things 
that you would manually have to do and could do them for you. Uh, if somebody walked into my office right now and I wanted to switch from my headset, since I'm wearing a headset, to the microphone and speakers in my office, I can just tell Sammy to do that and it'll automatically. These are all functions that are that are available now, not the ones that are coming in the future. So, um, you know, if I wanted to mute someone, okay. I could just tell her to mute someone. I could Things of that nature that are a little bit of low-level things that you have to search around and all that through the menu to find them, she can do them automatically just by commanding her to. I want to know something, Angel. What surprised you the most in the development of this product? Uh, I think what surprised me was how rude most uh, most products like this are and that there was no reason for it. So if I ask Sammy to do something and then she does it and I say, thank you, she will say, you're welcome. As simple as that. It's a very natural thing for humans. I think that's what the big companies have missed, that it's a very, when we are hardwired to have a certain way of communicating with other humans. And you cannot just simply replace that with an AI and expect us to be different. And we, we certainly, people treat their virtual assistants almost as slaves because they talk to them with orders. And we wanted to sort of change that and the surprise, how easy it was is what surprised me. That part of it is to make it her, make Sammy a little more polite, a little more respectful. She waits until, to see what you're going to say. And then if she reacts to what you say in a very human-like form, that's what we call her, you know, socially advanced machine intelligence, you know, socially uh, non-advanced is the rest of them out there because, you know, I deal with Siri and I have to, you know, and first of all, Siri doesn't even get it right 90% of the time, which is annoying enough, but still I have to, to give her orders, you know, turn on the lights or turn off the lights. And it's, there's no conversation. And if I say, thank you, it ignores me. <laughs> so so that surprised me how how people also adjust to that new way much easier than having you know a slave a digital slave instead of a digital assistant or virtual assistant i'm going to pivot here and i'm going to since i read the biography of steve jobs and i have two of your staffers here with us they can confirm <laughs> for me, some of the questions that I'm going to ask you in comparison to Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, as you mentioned previously, was a discontent because he always saw how things could be better. The downside to him was that he was very visceral. He was very emotional. He was a very passionate person. And he would uh, often cry in some of their meetings because he had difficulty processing a lot of the the emotions that ran through his mind and body in some of those meetings. And Steve Jobs was the kind of person that he would like you and praise you in the morning, and he would think that you were the worst human being in the afternoon. So are you like that? I am. Um, I'm, I'm very passionate and, um, and emotional about the things that I think are important. Um, I think the world, for example, I'm not going to pivot on you, I promise, is changed fundamentally. We can talk about that later. There's some dramatic changes that are being, uh, that are, that are coming into being right now. And yes, I will save it for later. I do want to save that for our later discussion. 
because it's what we're talking about here uh, is the race to the bottom of of the reptilian brain, the race, the the dynamics. So I, I think the only difference between Steve and I, and maybe that was the right way to wake up in the morning and love your staff, and then in the afternoon you hate them. I'm emotional, both positive and negatively. If some, but I do that privately. I do not embarrass any one of my employees in public. Okay, that is just bad form. It's really kind of embarrassing. If there is a disagreement, I always use humor. So I just, and then later I will handle it. So I don't like embarrassing people in front of others. So I would say that's a difference. Yeah, he was vicious. He didn't care who was listening. <laughs> Steve Jobs was vicious. Uh, people were afraid to get in the elevator because you could get fired right there on the spot if he didn't like something about you. And you were given orders not to talk to him in the hallways unless he addressed you. So again, very eccentric kind of person. But again, that's the way geniuses are. That the average person that works, and I've worked for someone uh, akin to Steve Jobs. So I know their personality and I know their, their drivers and I know their, their faults. And more importantly, I know how they were created. How that imbalance uh, to, to go the uh, business or the technology route really created, for them, it became their, their life purpose, uh, irregardless of the human connection with family or with employees. I, I could see that. I can see that being a, being a driver and moving us away. I do know, um, Victor, that I do not have the same empathy that most people have, uh, I, that I'm not so emotionally connected to people. But I really have to say that the proof of working for me is the fact that most of the employees of, my, of, of mine, even today, have worked with me through many of my companies. Some of them have 30 years working for me. So no one wants that kind of hell. <laughs> so, so I think I balance it. Yes, it is difficult. I am, I am a complex, difficult person because I only expect pe the best from people. I don't want mediocrity. If I wanted mediocrity, I would hire a whole other type of people. I hire people who are the best, in my opinion, of what they do, even if they don't know it. And that's the people that I surround myself with. Uh, thank you. Another character trait of Steve Jobs was that he was a stickler. With the release of the iPad, it was like two or three weeks out from delivery. And when they showed it to him, he says, stop everything because I want the edges of the iPad curved because I can't pick it up from, from this table. I'm the same way. Yeah, that, that cost the company millions of dollars and the delay in uh, delivery. But again, he was OCD about perfection. I am too. I, I have to confess that I am too. That's a little bit embarrassing because, um, yeah, I am definitely uh, OCD uh, to an extreme. I'm not the normal person, Victor. You should not think that I am just the consequences of my environment. <laughs> I can be easily replicated. I'm not the normal person. I tell you that right now. And, I'm, and that's not a compliment. I'm not praising myself for the process. I'm not normal. I am eccentric and I live uh, a very unique life. I've been very successful, so I get away with it. 
<laughs> when you're successful, you get away with it. But that doesn't mean that I advocate my style. I do tend to teach the people who work uh, uh, with me by saying, here is my prediction about what this is going to happen. And, and they may say, you know, no, it's not going to happen that way because X, Y, Z. And when it happens that way, they go, well, how did you know? And I get to teach them what to be looking at. What are the real factors that actually result in whatever outcome we were looking for? And, and that's probably a difference between me and Steve. He never taught anybody anything. <laughs> he, just, he just says, this is the way and that's it. I'm not going to explain it to you. For this That's project, right. <laughs> it takes one to know one, okay? So, because, because I'm a lot like that, and I can attest to what you're saying because your assistant, uh, Robin, has been meticulous in making sure that this interview happened on time and uh, covering all the dotting the I's and crossing the T's to make sure that everything went perfectly. So, kudos to Robin. Yeah, she's in charge of, uh, so Robin is in charge of our public relations. And, and she's really kind of in charge of who gets exposure to me and who I get exposed to. She operates with the same mentality, but she's that way naturally. I didn't bring her out. I noticed it right away. Um, you know, when I met her the first time I met her, she was working at a different company at the time. And when I met her because of the questions she asked and how inquisitive she was and how, and how she did not want to kiss my behind to use a kind of a better word, uh, I knew that she really needed to understand. And when people understand something, then they can, it's, uh, because what she does is a form of sales. She has to make me attractive to other people. Correct. I have very inter uh, little interaction with her. She just tells me, okay, here's who you're going to talk to. This is why I never question it. I don't process it. Um, so I know that she's already done everything she needs to do. Another person is on the call that's quiet is Theodore Adroshenko. He's our, he's a chief technology officer. He's, he's the person that's like, if there was such a thing of being under your thumb, it'd be him because we are a technology company. And I hired him when he was in high school, Victor. Yes. He's now doing his doctorate in, in artificial intelligence. So he's been working for us for quite a long time. And in the in the process of doing that and working, you know, it formed him. He, it just formed him. He's just now. I remember early on when he asked me why I hired him, and I said because you're lazy. <laughs> he was like, "Wait, what?" I go. He goes, "Yeah, I am, but why would you hire me if you go because because you always find the fastest, easiest way to do things, and we're a small company. We need that. We need people who think on their feet and solve problems." So although, uh, yeah. although it's not always a positive experience for him to be under my scrutiny all the time, but it has been rewarding, I think, for him and for me. And we really take care of our employees every, anywhere we can, we can. So if we've had an offer last year, I should tell your audience a little bit of a pivot. We had an offer uh, for Beacon uh, before launching, before launching the paid version, which comes out uh, next month for 80 million to begin with. And then they upped the offer later to 100 million. And we turned it down. We didn't turn it down because we're greedy. We just turned it down because we were so invested already in the product emotionally and all that. We wanted to see it through. And it's kind of a nerve wracking process because you don't, you know, you don't know how people are going to react. You don't know that, that Victor Escalante is going gonna, is gonna to go on the show and, and witness it and go, this is the best thing I've seen. 
that is up to you. That is out of my control. And that is the problem when you do beautiful things. You're kind of like an artist and not just a business person. You create something that has a magic to it, but it's up to the people who use it to sort of discover it and to say, wait, this is a lot better than anything that's out there. And that process I cannot control. <laughs> I want to go back to the point that you made earlier of how your your products were going to be different than some of the toxic, uh, dark uh, stuff that is out on social media. Talk to us about that. When I launched Massive Monocity, I, my core competency have been for the last years in gaming. And video gaming, online communication for video gamers is the most toxic environment ever. It's like the swamps of the internet. And I just felt that there should be, you know, something else. We certainly thought about it and talked about it, about the differences that we could make, but we decided to do it. We launched uh, Gaming Tribe, which now is known just as G-Tribe for your audience that wants to look it up. And it is composed of people from every nation, um, from every country in the world. Uh, it's small. It's not large. It's not, you know, it doesn't have billions of people in it, but it's not tiny that it only has, you know, 600 people on it. There's six million people on G-Tribe. Out of those, some are active, some are not. Some like reading mostly stuff and some like participating. So there's that normal mixture, but it's positive. There's no profanity. We don't allow profanity on it. You can speak in profanity. We don't do anything about that, but we change the words because we have, obviously we have every profane uh, word, profane word in our database and it changes it with, with an emoji. So you can say X, Y, Z profanity and it changes it into something that is laughable. Right, that is kind of cute, and uh, and there's no advertising, so um, we want it sort of a refuge, a place where people can relax and and be themselves. And frankly, it's been the most magical experience. We got offered last year 120 million dollars for G Tribe. Certainly not that not we were not going to sell it because we know what's if somebody buys it, what they're going to do with it. And then people have trusted us with a lot of personal information. People who are gay have come out gay, people that are transsexuals, everything, and no one cares. Ultimately, I prove my point. Humans really would prefer to have positive experience with other humans. But if the trend is that we're going to make fun of each other, that we're going to insult each other, that we're going to emphasize all the differences between you and I, Victor, for example, then that's what you get. That's, you know, uh, Twitter that now Elon Musk and his genius move owns, uh, which I think is the most ridiculous decision he's ever made, or, or Facebook or any of this. You go there, you know, and there's just this constant argument and this constant, uh, you know, disagreement. Uh, you don't really see that on G Tribe. It's people building upon other people's ideas yeah. and interacting in a positive way. The miracle is that we just told them that's the way to do it. That that's what we're going to do here. And as people resisted that process, most people were so tired by the negativity, the diatribe, the toxicity, like you said, and and all that that they basically decided 
okay, let's ignore this person because they're not going with the spirit of what we have. So it self-policed itself to the degree that I don't can't remember the last time we had to even bring somebody's attention to something negative on G Drive. So people just are accustomed yeah. to a positive way, caring about each other. So I'll give you one example, Victor, and, and then we'll end this. But I uh, yesterday I posted a picture of me and my car. Uh, I drive, well, I don't drive it. That's the point of my conversation. I have a Tesla. I'm in the beta program for the autopilot. And of course, it has so much negative um, you know, press and every accident is maximized. And I posted a picture of me in my car and saying, hey, you know, basically, you know, my car is taking me home right now. And everyone who posted goes, please be safe. Like they were not even, here's a technology minded people who are more concerned about my safety because I'm allowing my car to take me home than anything else. It's the kind of humanity that I think we miss in the world. And that's why I call the, the company Mass Luminosity, light for the masses keeping them in the dark, and then just, you know, taking advantage of them. Angel, talk to us about your leadership style for your company and what uh, aspiring entrepreneurs or company executives uh, should consider uh, to get ahead to thrive in today's marketplace. I don't really have any magic formulas. I would say the first thing, what works for me, Victor, I can only speak what works for me, don't ever do anything because you can make money at it. Quincy Jones used to say that when he met an artist that walked into the studio with, in his mind, he had money, God would leave the place. And I always thought that to be so true. The moment you start thinking about money and all, and how you're going to, you know, and all that, it's, it's a necessary you know, that's the reason you start a business, but don't make it just the only reason. Be passionate about yes. what transformations you can you can impact on the world. Can you move the needle in the right direction for a little bit? Then the rewards come after. That's what we've gotten those offers uh, that I told you earlier. And that's $200 million worth of offers last year because people realize, people that in the, in the industry realize these people definitely move the needle and we're, we're just getting started. So, so we're, we're about to even take that two and three notches up. So, and I know that we're running out of time. I just wanted to say to your audience, you need to also be aware of the trends and the biggest trend going on right now is artificial intelligence who has radically changed our society. You have not seen the consequences of it yet, but this is bigger than when the World Wide web got started. This is, in fact, I predict that there will be no World Wide Web after AI because AI is going to give you everything you need. You don't have to go through pages. You don't have to look at sites. You don't have to go to new sites. That's all gone. It's going to vanish. And all, every conversation that we're going to have with humans is going to be like this one, Victor. So if this can be enhanced with artificial intelligence and we can gain more information about each other as we're talking, that only enhances the experience. That's the near future. And that idea will make the next, in the next five years, will be the first trillionaires on the planet will come from that, what I just said. That's how certain I am. There you have it, friends. Angel Munoz and his wisdom <laughs> that you can take to the bank by AI. <laughs> Get into AI. Not like the uh, 70s by plastic. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much, Angel. We look forward to your continued success and you have to come back. Keep us abreast of all your successes. Uh, thank you, Victor. And thank you for having me on the show. And for all your listeners, thank you for listening. And, and I hope you found something interesting.